Hello, DataFem listeners, and welcome to the hottest data science podcast, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and this episode is so exciting, mainly because Quinn McHenry, senior developer at Small Planet, is our guest, but also because it's the season one finale of DataFem. We've come so far as a podcast and a community. And Quinn and I had a great time talking about his discovery of AI and how data plays a role in mobile app development. Okay, so tell me a bit about your background in machine learning and how it led to your finding yourself at Small Planet. Sure, I took a crooked path uh, to get where I am. Um, I guess like a good reinforcement learning algorithm, I focused a lot on exploration early, uh, like a lot. And um, I've been 12 years in undergrad and grad school. Um, I started in chemical engineering, electrical engineering, a little photojournalism, but I settled on uh, biomedical engineering uh, I think not far from you, Louisiana Tech University, and uh, yeah, that is pretty close uh, to me. <laughs> small world. Um, biomedical engineering was perfect for me because it's uh, the most generalist engineering field. You get to do everything: you, mechanical and chemical, electrical, even civil engineering. But it's all applied through the lens of advancing medicine, which feels really good at the end of the day. And I wasn't ready to leave after I graduated, so I. Continued my uh, uh, long path, I'm sorry, my long path, that um, led me to study neuroscience. Uh, I, I got to study in rhesus monkeys three-dimensional eye movements in response to linear and angular motion and a combination of those. Later, we even recorded from individual neurons uh, during that process or part of the, that circuit. And uh, it was amazing science and amazing technology that back then. Uh, and it was a really fun time. But it turned out that my ability to contribute to science, I think, was mostly because I could bend a computer to my will uh, since I was 13. So um, the generalist in me, um, well, it's a cliche, but the farther you go in grad school, the, the less you know about everything, the more you know about one thing. And somebody told me that uh, while I was in grad school, and it, it kind of hurt. Um, so I, uh, I really like doing a lot of different things, and, and actually not just doing them superficially, but really digging into them. So. Uh, after grad school, I kind of rode the wave of the end of the dot-com era. I got to enjoy some of that and then did some other things. But the world changed for me when I uh, held the first iPhone in my palm. Um, I still have it, and every once in a while I grab it, and it just feels really good. It's so tiny. <laughs> um, but the, it just opened up a crack in the universe. Everything changed for me, uh, and there were so many possibilities. I, just amazing. And uh, immediately downloaded the developer kit when it was available. And now we can fast forward. So in the last 10 years, I've been working at an agency, a small planet in Brooklyn. I'm a technical director there. I've just been a programmer making mobile applications for lots of clients like Disney and Planned Parenthood. That was one of my very favorite applications. Um, and 
uh, over the last year, we've been doing prep work for our first software as a medical device project. Uh, that's really a cool combination of uh, all the worlds coming together. It's a, essentially a machine learning project that's uh, listening to data on a phone from a Bluetooth connected stethoscope and classification and listening for a uh, specific weird sound. It's pretty uncommon and maybe hard to pick up as a human and uh, that is associated with a terrible disease that's also treatable. Uh, if caught in time. So uh, really good stuff. It got derailed. Uh, we were just about ready to start when things, uh, you know, not all pandemic-y. And, um, but I do hope we get to pick it up again. Because uh, it's, it's yeah, kind of a dream project for me. As far as how I got into machine learning, uh, uh, over the last several years, Small Planet encouraged me to um, spend my time between client projects, uh, diving into machine learning. I've been doing it a lot on my own over the years, but it was really a big deal to have that official sanction and backing from them and also access to a pinball machine, which uh, is another story. But way back in the day, I remember uh, very clearly in undergrad a lecture, just a little bit of a lecture, just a few minutes worth, uh, where a professor described an artificial neural net, uh, neuron, just one, and kind of the capabilities of it. And, we were like, huh. and then for a couple, another minute, he opened our minds to the possibilities of what a lot of those could do working together. And all the way back, I was sitting next to my uh, roommate, and all the way back to our dorm, we just kept getting more and more excited in this, this positive feedback loop of, of just like eager excitement. And we didn't sleep that night. We just like stayed up the entire night talking about it. And kind of as dawn broke, we were kind of bummed because we realized we were a couple decades too, too early uh, that, that we wouldn't be able to do the most with that that we could. Our computers ran at like 10 megahertz and, and you know, uh, megabytes of memory and GPUs weren't a thing yet. And um, it was just, we didn't know what we can do. But now I can train a machine learning model that can run on my Apple Watch, which is <laughs> really amazing and cool. Um, so that's where we are now. That's so cool. That's so, um, like, it's encouraging to think that you were losing sleep in the best way possible over machine learning. And then now you see the results of all of that planning and laying the foundation. I mean, somebody had to do that before we got to the point where, you know, applying was actually possible. I want to hear about the Planned Parenthood work you did because you said that that was your favorite. Oh, it was. I remember actually I'd come off a project that I thought was really complicated at the time. Uh, and my favorite projects are always the more complicated ones for whatever reason, because uh, I'm a weirdo. But um, but. I like I liked really meeting things. And actually, I thought, oh, I saw this prototype of birth control and cycle and period tracking app uh, for Planned Parenthood. And uh, just the design of it, and look, I thought, oh, this will be a nice little break. Uh, this, this isn't going to be too hard, and, and I'll need a nice little respite from what I thought was complicated. And then uh, several weeks into it, I remember kind of uncovering this something as I was kind of looking through the architecture and how we were going to make it work and, and all this. And I just remember thinking, oh, oh, it, it sunk in how really interesting and complicated it was. And, um, and I was like, I'm going to be back in a couple of days. So I just kind of went in, in dark and just kind of thought about it and, um, and came back and we, we made this amazing app. So it's amazing because it, it hid the complexity of, of something that's, that seems simple, um, 
but when you get down to it, it's really complicated. And like, uh, I liken it to maybe uh, almost a word processor because, well, as a developer, I think it's my responsibility to hide complexity from my users. Uh, that I want to, I want to take on that complexity so that their experience is really simple, as simple as possible. So for for something where you track something every day, um, you don't want to be forced to to write that story linearly. You want to be able to go back and edit things and not do anything for a week and come back and fill in details and not be scared into thinking you've done something wrong because you did. So uh, so we made this nonlinear uh, editor where you could. Uh, make mistakes and go change things and, and kind of play around. But at any given time, it was giving uh, information. So in a complex project before, if something went wrong, it would crash and maybe a little child would cry because uh, Disney princess disappeared and, 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 you know, but here, if something went wrong, somebody might get pregnant that doesn't want to. Uh, like that's a very real world bug that, um, that we thought about a lot. There are seven different types of birth control that we were concerned with. Of that pill was one type, but there are like 170 different types of pills, and they behave differently normally, and they misbehave differently too. And then uh, users can use them in different ways that they are not prescribed for. And and so we wanted to handle all of these possibilities, uh, and also handle when they switch from a ring to a pill, and and help make that transition better. Um, so at any given time, we we bubbled up one one piece of information. It might be a fact, or it might be a question. Did you take your pill today? Um, and uh, so it's essentially uh, an algorithm to decide what should we add, what's the most important and relevant thing to ask at this moment that will help the user the most. And just getting through onboarding, there are uh, well over, I want to say it's 160,000 different possible states we could be in just, just in the onboarding before we've entered any data. And over three months of using the app, uh, the number of possible states you could get into is something like, 10 to the 109, <laughs> you know, it's not even astronomical. It's like, there are, I think there are 10 to the 17 atoms in the universe. So it's not something you could QA or you couldn't actually go through all the possibilities and test them and make sure that they work. And so that's a, that was the, the moment I realized like the space of, of possibilities for the app to be in. That was the, the moment I had to go home and, and, and just um, reevaluate my life and think about it some and figure out how we were going to approach it and how, how we're going to solve it. I actually love working really closely with clients like that because they very freely share their knowledge and they're in it with us and they understand we didn't foresee any of these problems when we started this and now we all are on the same page. We understand what we're working through together to get to, to our common goal. That's really awesome to hear and it's really great to see how apps can make such a difference in making healthcare of all kinds more accessible. It's interesting because I just hosted a, a chat on Twitter that I do weekly called Data Everyone. This week's was about self-report data. So when you mentioned the self-report data needed for your Planned Parenthood study, it made me wonder just in general how self-report data that you collect has specific implications for health and fitness and how do you make sure that you're collecting the right information because like you said the stakes are really high in these areas with making sure that you develop the right thing so one of the important things i think is letting users change their data uh, that's self-reported um, and there, you see a lot where it's actually hard to do that in, in, in some cases because it requires thinking about that early in the process and allowing for that both in the UI and in, and in the model, um, but letting a user change 
their state after the fact is, is really important. So what can we expect from you and Small Planet in the near future in terms of what we'll be seeing on our devices? Last month, uh, the FDA released a guidance document that loosened the restrictions on certain types of mental health treatment applications using a, you know, a mobile application that qualifies as a medical device. Well, it's a new thing. Uh, most of the regulations treat it the same way that they would treat a scalpel or a heart valve. That's great for those types of devices because we want them to have this rigorous process they go through with clinical trials and all this to make sure that they're free from unacceptable risk. Uh, but it's weird when you apply that to software because um, after you make your last code commit, uh, it could be two major iOS releases for iOS 14 or 15 before your app <laughs> gets into the store. Um, that's it's really weird as a developer uh, to ship something and not and have like a year and a half before it's out in, in the world. Uh, and it, it may break before then. It's a new thing. So software is such a rapidly evolving breakneck thing. And having it fall under the regulatory purview of something that's decades old. Very interesting. Yeah, I've done some work with mental health. And I know that it's hard to quantify and also hard to get accurate data because of internalized self-stigma. And there was something else you said about the long waiting process as a developer. How do you make sure that everything you're developing stays relevant at the time you think it'll release? Because as we know, one day in March, you can blink and the whole world changes into apocalypse time. It's a different mindset for sure. Uh, we've been thinking about it for over a year, knowing that by the time it's released, that the user interface even will seem stale. But I think it's kind of an accepted thing that uh, medical software it tends to be less polished. Uh, it tends to be more utilitarian. And um, as long as it's there and can do good, we'll, we'll accept it. That's something I can relate to with my content production, for sure. I'll look back on some content and think, oh, that was such a good piece. It's probably still relevant. Let me change the title and share it again. I mean, if you're not doing that as a journalist, you haven't been doing your job. You know, some content should be evergreen. I've never thought about that kind of dissonance when a developer is writing for the future because you know that when marketing comes in a year and a half later, they're working with two years ago's perspective. What, what do you think the data that we're getting from our world now is going to look like when we consolidate all this mobile data that we're going to have? One of the big things around the data on our phones is privacy. And I think it's, it's foremost about, there's just a, a lot of people thinking about it, both actively, proactively, and, and the good news is that, like, from a machine learning perspective, uh, there are so many things we can do on a device now. Uh, the, the neural engine on an iPhone is a dedicated processor that does machine learning stuff really efficiently. It's amazing the capabilities we have. So we can do a lot of number crunching and processing of data real time or, or overnight or whenever on device that in your data will never leave your phone. So from a privacy perspective, it's, it's tight and perfect and, and really clean. Uh, it's also great that we don't have to pay for a gazillion servers in the cloud to do this processing. Uh, it's, it's handled kind of for free for us. 
and and that's a big plus. But and and as personally, I have no problem with a model, a machine learning model, having access to any of my data of any kind, as long as as it doesn't leave my phone, the results of the data and, or the data itself. I guess on the bad news side of that, it a lot of the data that we will collect is of no use to the world if it stays on your device. We have the ability to do a lot of things, um, but we have to uh, get out of our own skins and, and look at the greater good and see that we're all on the same boat or, you know, spokes of the same wheel or however you want to say it. What do you think that privacy versus informing the world's trade-off will look like? So there's some countries that have done a really good job, been given the access or they've taken access or however you want to phrase it um of uh information there's a story that somebody uh traveling i want to say taiwan in taiwan support um that uh, their phone ran out of battery and they were they were contacted <laughs> in person uh not long after if they if their phone doesn't move uh in a period of time that that suggests that they left it sitting somewhere idle and that they may have left their, their home that level of house arrest is, um, is a hard thing to, to accept, um, but it's that level of personal sacrifice for the greater whole. If we can very smartly uh, get information from, from mobile devices or any other source we can, we only close down what we need to when we need to, um, the impact for society so much less. The number of personal sacrifices will reduce by so much. Yeah, agreed. What what specifically do you think could be useful right now in terms of machine learning and data science techniques? Uh, looking at real traffic patterns of pedestrians, say, given given the geometry of things, you could very easily use a machine learning technique that can draw a little bounding box around every human uh, that, that it finds in that scene. With a, a little bit of math, you can figure out the geometry of, of your camera, and you could actually get pretty accurate movement patterns, X, Y coordinates on the ground of people moving through uh, space and time. And then you would tell how often people are within a certain distance of each other to ensure that distancing guidelines are being followed. The one thing I'd say is that in a more medical space, specifically things that could be applied to software medical devices, we do a lot of tracing and we know who wrote this line of code uh, made this line of change, who approved this this approach, or who said this risk is acceptable. There's always the responsibility, traceability uh, in these systems. And if I'm the person that's deciding how are we going to classify a sound or an x-ray image or, or these things, given the choice of thinking about trying to justify that decision, uh, I'm probably going to be more comfortable if I can choosing something simple like a logistic regression. I want to know how you feel our interactions with personal devices are changing. So there's a rumor that the next Apple Watch will include some kind of anxiety ometer, something that will measure anxiety level. I, I would assume that that's more than just heart rate or maybe existing sensors. I think that's really fascinating because and I hope that's true. I'd love to find out how they do it. There are so many people suffering anxiety at levels that are, you know, obviously never been experienced before at that level. These are things I like to think about. How can we make data that can help people cope with things better? I, I do find that I don't have my phone on my person as much uh, working from home, but my watch is always connected. 
that type of wearable technology uh, that has a really closely coupled insight into my physical well-being. I think they're also looking at maybe uh, doing some sleep analysis, which they just have to figure out how to charge it quickly and, and it would be amazing. It would be a large step forward for mental health awareness if there were some anxiety tracker on a device as commonplace as an Apple Watch, because then people would feel comfortable with the idea of this these emotions being monitored. And I think we're still in a place where proving that we're 100% with it and happy and positive is still very much expected and maybe less so now, but I haven't really seen much of a change. If anxiety monitoring mobile devices, not you wouldn't have to check it all the time if you didn't want to, but having that as kind of an across the board tracker, that would definitely make a difference in how we view our mental health. I think it'd be wonderful. The ability uh, of lots of data sources to come together in this one personal database is amazing. Uh, if you track your food intake uh, with a really good app, very fine-grained information about your nutritional data uh, beyond simple things, but also vitamins and minerals and uh, crazy stuff. So uh, I can imagine as that becomes more accurate, as uh, being a, a really amazing data source that we can, how we're doing well, thank you so much, Quinn. It's been wonderful to talk to you, and you've given us a lot of insights. In fact, one of my listeners who happened to be here when I was editing suggested that the mental health tracking you mentioned on our Apple Watches could be very useful for law enforcement and even police departments to see how anxiety is processed in critical situations as such. So this is something we could definitely continue to talk about hopefully in season two of data femme you were a perfect guest to wrap up season one and a lot of the important topics that we've been covering especially surrounding mental health and acceptance in society those are all themes that are really important to data femme so i really appreciate it and thank you so much to small planet for sponsoring this episode and giving us a chance to talk about these very real world issues for all of you Data Femme listeners, please follow, if you haven't already, on social media at Decayo Data. I will be posting a lot of the older episodes from this season so that all of us can catch up and reminisce about our favorite quotes from our favorite episodes. So stay tuned for that. And also be sure to share your opinions both on Apple Podcasts when you review and on social media so that we can all get geared up for season two of Data Femme. Thank you so much, and I will see you for season two.